Well, friends, uh, it is really good to be together. Thank you for a sweet time of worship, uh, certainly to those uh, skilled individuals that led us, but in reality, the congregation is the choir, and uh, I think we entered into the Lord's presence today, and, and I was blessed, and I hope you were encouraged as well. Listen, I'll just say from the beginning, if you don't yet know Christ and what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, it starts that song we talked about there, about that debt that we have, that because of our sin, we fall short of the perfection that God requires of us. But God's desire to be in relationship with us was so strong that he would solve our problem. And he did that through Jesus Christ. Our debt has been paid. And if you don't yet know that, I encourage you, consider that through the service. And especially when service is over, take some time to talk with someone, maybe someone that invited you, maybe someone that's near you. If you turn to them and say, could you explain it to me? And they're like, I don't know it either. Then come find someone. We'll, we'll gladly share with you. Uh, the, the message of the gospel. We talked earlier about uh, the uh, prayer thing that's going to be at my house. Um, that's actually going to be at 6 o'clock. Uh, tonight's is at 6.30. We moved that a little bit earlier so we could have a time uh, to pray with one another, a time to worship. Uh, and then we're going to do this testimony time, which I think is sweet. And there's a, I know a lot of people's stories. People kind of share with me what God has been doing, what they're struggling with six months later, where they're at now, and all of that. And I just think it would be a real blessing to our congregation if we all got a chance to hear some of those stories. Um, so we have three people in particular that are going to be sharing, a couple and an individual, uh, as, as to what God has been doing in their lives. Uh, these are folks that have been in the Lord for a number of years, but God doesn't stop working in our lives when we come to the Lord. Hopefully, he keeps working in our lives uh, and he challenges us, and it's hard, and it's stretching experiences, and walking by faith, all those things that we've been learning in our study of the book of Habakkuk. And so we have a few folks that are going to be sharing that. I really think it'll be an edifying time for each of us. So I encourage you, set some time apart, uh, be there uh, for that. If the weather's nice, we'll be on my back patio. If it's not so nice, we'll be inside uh, in our living room. So it should be a sweet time. I know that today is 9-11 as you do, I'm sure, as well. And I know for some of us, 9-11 uh, especially hits. Um, it's been said, particularly in our area, that everybody knows somebody who knew somebody that perished, uh, particularly around this particular area. But I do know that some of you, it hits even closer to home because of your experiences. So please know uh, we're praying with you and for our nation. I encourage you share your story with others. That's very cathartic and important to be doing. So if today's an especially difficult day, please take some time and share that with someone else so they can be praying for you. We are in the book of Habakkuk this morning. Uh, you can turn there in your Bibles. We have some available Bibles in some of the chairs nearby. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you. It's okay to take it. You don't have to like sneak it steal and wonder if you're in trouble. We want you to have it. Now, if you got one and you're like, this would be great for my car, you go buy your own. All right. <laughs> this is for those that don't have one. Uh, we'd like for you to have a Bible uh, in that way. If, you're, if you've never really entered into sort of a daily reading of the Bible, uh, we can help you with that, explain kind of good places to start and processes and things like that. Um, 
but we have a Bible available. And if, if you're not familiar with where the book of Habakkuk is, don't forget table of contents. You can just turn to that page. It'll tell you where to go. The last time we were together, we began this book. It's a relatively small book. There's three chapters in this book. Uh, we are not going to finish it today. Um, so we'll take three studies to make our way through this particular book. But the last time we were together, we learned that this is a book about a man of faith that is struggling with some things with God, doesn't quite understand what God is doing or why God isn't doing what he expects God to be doing. And he brings those questions. The name Habakkuk, his name, it means wrestling. That's exactly what he does. He wrestles with God on these things. God, if I would do it, why aren't you doing it? God, why are you doing it that way? I would do it this way. Those kinds of important questions that didn't cause him to turn away from God, but caused him to turn to God. That's so very important. And any of us that have been in the Lord for a little while has probably had those instances where there's been some difficulty, some struggle. We're wondering what God is doing and why he is doing it in that particular way. And our friend Habakkuk is a wonderful example to us. Habakkuk is a believer in God, and he gives us a very important perspective that we can apply to our lives as well. Now, I'll remind you of this. Habakkuk, we estimate he was somewhere around the year 610 B.C., that's about 25, 30 years after a religious spiritual revival came to the nation of Judah, the, the southern kingdom of the Jewish people. God was doing a work. People returned to the Lord. His blessing was being poured out. People were experiencing it. But over a period of about 20 or 25 years, that revival began to wane in the lives of the people of the nation. And people began to return to sin and engaged in some sinful practices that were perhaps worse than where they were before. And Habakkuk sees this, he's troubled by this, he's bothered by this, and he goes to God and he says, God, you have to intervene. Now, I imagine he was hoping God would bring another revival, but God uh, instead, as we learned, determined he was going to bring a disciplining judgment on the southern kingdom. And he was going to do so through the hands of the people of Babylon, or as they're called in verse 6, the Chaldeans. You see there in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. Look at verse 9. It says, They, capture, they gather their captives like sand. And that would go on in like five years to be the reality for the southern kingdom where the first wave of the Babylonian invasion came into the southern kingdom and people began to be led away captive. You know the story of people like the prophet Daniel or the second wave, the prophet Ezekiel, as they were taken away captive by this people. God was bringing a judgment on the southern kingdom, the Jewish people. Now we know that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. We learned that in the study of scriptures, the book of Hebrews in particular. And so God was disciplining his people, not just to let them know how angry he was, but the root of the word discipline is discipleship. It's teaching. And God wanted to teach his people because his purpose was to bring them back to himself. Now for Habakkuk, that doesn't make any sense. I'm glad you want to bring us back to yourself, but why would you use somebody more wicked than us to discipline us for our sin? And what does he do? He goes to God again. So very important that we see that again and again, he goes to God. Now, we looked at the address of Habakkuk. 
uh, when we were last together. We left off in chapter 1, verse 12. And at that point in time, you may remember, I was going to take verses 12 to 17, and I was going to look at it twice. Once I was going to look at what Habakkuk, sort of the process that Habakkuk is going through, as he's asking those important questions about, God, what are you doing and why are you doing it that way? We looked at that when, the last time we were together. Today we're going to come back and we're going to look at those verses again and look at the specifics of what Habakkuk is saying so that we don't just sort of gloss over these things. I want to make sure we cover it properly. So we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 12. I'll start reading. You can follow along. It says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. We're talking about Babylon. You, who are of purer eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. And therefore, he, we're talking about Babylon, he sacrifices then to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So a little bit of a tricky passage, challenging passage, because what Habakkuk is doing, he's both talking to God, but at the same time, he's also talking about Babylon in this passage. And I looked at last week him talking to God. You remember he said essentially four things to God. He said, God, uh, well, he said, I don't understand, but he said, God, you are from everlasting, you are holy, you are sovereign, and you are faithful. He went back and he reminded himself of what he knew about God so that he could apply that to what he didn't understand presently about God. Today we're going to look at the things he said about Babylon. So look at verse 14 and 15. He speaks there of how mankind is like the fish of the sea gathered up in the dragnet of the Babylonians. And that's what the Babylonians were doing as they were coming to power replacing Assyria as sort of the world power of that day. They were just moving around the world in kind of the vicinity of their empire and just continually moving out further and further and capturing nations and the people, if you will, in their dragnet. He says, he said in chapter 1, verse 6, they marched through the breadth of the earth, capturing captives like a fisherman does with his dragnet. Now that harsh manner that they treated their defeated foe, it's, it's historic, it's legendary. Uh, people write about it. You can go and you can read about how the Babylonians uh, treated the people that they conquered. That's bad enough from the perspective of the children of Israel and from the Lord. But notice what Habakkuk does. He amplifies the magnitude of their sin, and he does so by pointing out the way that they would attribute their victories to their gods. You can see that in verse 16. He uses two different words there which are associated with acts of worship. The first one he says in verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net, and then he says, and he makes offerings to his dragnet. And so the idea is that following their victories, 
they would return somewhere or another and they would honor their gods for those victories. That, believing that their gods are the one that gave them the luxury, the ones that gave them the riches, the ones that gave them success against their enemy. And so the, the Babylonians, they were a people that were so blinded to their sin that they attribute, attributed any victory that they had to their gods, which, as the Apostle Paul says, are not gods at all. People may call them gods, but they're not gods at all, the Apostle says in Acts chapter 9. The, the Babylonians here, they violated the very, very first of God's commandment, the commandment of which the violation of all others stems, and that is that they should have no gods before me. Kyle quoted earlier from the book of Exodus as he told a story of that fellow in the prison he encountered. Well, Exodus chapter 20 are the Ten Commandments, and as you may remember, the very first of the commandments is, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. It was God himself, as we learned, that raised up Babylon to accomplish his purposes. And now Babylon is attributing their success to their false gods. Look at verse 17, Habakkuk, he goes on, he says, is he then, we're talking about Babylon, is Babylon then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk wondered last week, chapter 1, verse 2, why God wasn't doing something about Judah. Now he wonders if God is ever going to do something about Babylon. Again, notice he says, is he then going to keep on doing this forever, killing nations forever? He's wondering here how long God's going to allow the wicked Babylonians to continue their cruel conquest and then give glory to their false gods. So again, Habakkuk is a man of faith. He had settled, we saw this last week, that God was eternal. He had settled that God was holy. He had settled that God was sovereign. And he had settled that God was faithful. All these things he knows to be the case, and he's resting on those realities. And he came out of that having settled that if God determined that the Babylonians were the best means to discipline his people, then the Babylonians were the best means to discipline his people. He rested in that reality. He wrestled, but he rested in that and determined that he was going to continue to trust God, even if he didn't fully understand God. But he poses this question, how long, Lord, with Babylon? They're going to go on forever doing the things that they are doing. Now notice how chapter ends. Chapter 1 ends right there. There's no answer to his question. An answer is going to come later on, but it doesn't come immediately for Habakkuk. So he poses his question, and then he's left to wonder if God even heard the question or if he would ever provide him with an answer to that question. So notice with me then what Habakkuk does, because I think this is important for us. We come to God with what's on our hearts. I think that's very important. You can be as honest with God as you need to be, bear what's going on inside of you. And then sometimes as we do that, we don't get our response, at least not immediately. And we get frustrated. God, I, I posed this question to you an hour ago and you still haven't answered. A week ago and you still haven't answered. Lord, a year ago, three years ago, why aren't you answering? Now what Habakkuk does is model for us waiting in faith. 
which I think is a very, very hard thing to do as Christians. We don't like the wait. As Americans, we don't like the wait. We get frustrated at the microwave oven. 30 seconds. I can't believe I have to wait 30 seconds. We get frustrated at these things. And yet, sometimes God tells us to wait for years to see what he is doing. And that's hard. And a lot of times we want to get ahead of God. I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to do what I want to do, God, and you're going to have to sort of accommodate and end up blessing it. And God says, don't get ahead of me, wait. Watch what Habakkuk does here. In chapter 2, verse 1, this is really actually connected back with chapter 1. He says, so he asks his question, how long, Lord, with Babylon? And then in verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So what does he do? He determines he's going to wait for God's reply. I'm not going to get ahead of God. I'm going to, get, I'm going to pull back, I'm going to go up, and I'm going to wait. He determines he's going to wait for God's reply. And so after wrestling with God in chapter 1, he's ready now to watch and wait for the Lord. So last week I pointed out the way in which he did those four things, you may remember, where he stopped in the middle of his problem, he stopped to think. And then he directed his thinking with what he already knew about God. Those things he didn't understand, he put into the perspective of those things that he did understand. The third thing that he did was he then took that information and he applied it to his problem. And here now is the fourth thing that Habakkuk does is he commits his problem to God. And he makes it, if you will, he makes his problem God's problem. He determines to watch and he determines to wait. Again, not many things that are harder for us as Christians. Because we want God to work. We want him to act. But we want him to do it now. And so Habakkuk models for us the practice of committing the issue to God in faith. Or committing the issue to God by faith. He's gone as far as his reasoning can take him. And now he just has to sit back and he has to watch. And he has to wait. Let's take a look at how he does that. Let's take a look at where he does that. The, ver- the verse says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This speaks to how he does it. The first thing he does is he determines to take his stand. He determines he steadies himself. Have you ever been out in the ocean? Maybe this summer you've been out there and the waves are coming in and you know a big one is coming. What do you do? You brace yourself. And those who don't, the rest of us laugh at because it knocks you over if you're not ready for it. But what you do is you spread your legs a little wider. Maybe you put one back a little bit further and you're ready. That's what Habakkuk does. He steadies himself. He determines this is not going to shake me. I'm not going to allow this to knock me down. I'm going to take my stand, he says there. The second thing that he does is he goes to his watch post on the tower. That watch post was a place that one individual would go. That tells me he gets alone with God. And he gets alone with God in a place that would offer him perspective. He goes up in the tower. That's going to give him, if you will, a heavenly perspective to see things as God sees things. To be able to look down on his problem and have a perspective that is different from when it's right in front of you. 
He gets alone with God and he gets a heavenly perspective. I think the world in which we live has the tendency to bombard us with its difficulties, causing us to lose perspective. But not only that, I think the world in which we live, it's not just the difficulties that come at us. I think many times it's the very good things that come at us that have the ability to distract us, that have the ability to take our eyes off of heaven and put them down here on the world, that have the ability to capture our hearts so that, you know what, heaven's cool. One day I'll get there, but I love it here. And that's not always necessarily a good thing for us. And so we need to get that perspective. We need to pull away, be with the Lord. How important it is to regularly do that, to pull away from this world, to pull apart from the things that can distract us and instead focus our hearts and our minds on heaven. And certainly we do that when we gather here on Sunday mornings. And so you're commended for coming on a Sunday and gathering and committing to do that. We do that when we gather together on a Wednesday evening. But we also do that when we gather together in a small group setting and we have the word of God and we consider, or maybe we take a godly book as uh, is going to be forming shortly, and we consider these things about God from the perspective there of that material. Or even just something as simple as a meal that's centered around godly conversation with others. All of those things allow us to have perspective. But I would suggest to you there's no more important place that we do that than alone with God in the word of God with prayer and meditation. And so some people call that their quiet time. Other people call that devotion. But a regular time of sitting with the word of God and allowing the word of God speak into your life and give you perspective. And so whatever you call it, quiet time, devotions, whatever, I think it's critical for every one of us as Christians to be doing that regularly. A regular time to sit with the Lord and let him minister to your heart. If you don't do that, we want to encourage you in that. Where would I start? We'd love to talk you through that. And so after service, come sit with us. We would, we'll gladly share that with you because it'll change your life. Now, the third thing that Habakkuk does, it's at, that's revealed in this, in this verse, notice about halfway through, he says, and I will look out to see what the Lord will say to me. The third thing he does is he expectantly waits for God to answer. You see, all of us, we can mouth a prayer, but perhaps not even really believe it. And thus, we're never looking for an answer. He's expectant. He's waiting. He knows God will intervene in God's timing, and he's waiting and he's trusting for that timing. The final phrase of verse 1, it says in the English Standard Version, it's a little tricky for um, translators here, and so if, if you do this, and I recommend it, compare different uh, translations, the King James, the New King James, the English Standard, the New American Standard, maybe the NIV, something like that. One thing you would notice is almost every one of those translations is a little bit different from one another. Well, that, that should speak to you. It's a tricky passage in the original language, and so the translators are doing their best to, to communicate what they think it's trying to communicate. So in the ESV, it says this, the end there, he says, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The New King James Version, as well as, as you can imagine, the King James Version and the New American Standard, they say something a little more along this lines. They say, and how I may reply when I am reprimanded or corrected. 
That's it's kind of different. And so the idea that Habakkuk, I think, the idea that Habakkuk is humbly admitting is, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you would do it that particular way. He's admitting that, and then he is humbly willing to wait for God to explain it to him so that it makes sense. It makes sense to God, and it's made sense to God all along. It doesn't make sense to Habakkuk. And so he says, here's my prayer. I'm going to go up on my tower, and I'm going to wait until you help it make sense or cause it to make sense to me. So throughout this whole back and forth with Habakkuk, it's very important for us to understand is he has maintained an attitude of humility through the entire process. He's not accusing God. He's truly seeking to learn and to understand. Again, it's the difference between Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in the book of Luke, who said to the angel, what are you going to do to prove this to me? That sort of an attitude when that angel told him his wife was going to conceive. And then Mary, just a few verses later, when she's told she's going to conceive, her question is, well, how can these things be? I've never known a man. They're both saying, what? That doesn't make any sense but with a very different heart attitude. And Habakkuk had a heart attitude much like Mary. He didn't understand, but he wanted to understand. He came in humility. He said, Lord, I'm going to wait for you to make sense of this for me. His words and his actions reveal that heart attitude. And the, the reason why he comes to God is because he knew, I'm wrong here. I'm off base here. I think I know what is right, but you're God. You're sovereign, you're holy, you're good, you're faithful. Obviously, what you choose to do is correct. Help me to understand that. Correct me so I can see things as you see things. Verse 2 goes on and he says, and I love this, and the Lord answered me. God is so faithful. It is hard sometimes to be a Christian. We just want to go ahead and do our own thing. But we love the Lord. And the Lord's been so good to us in the past. Like Peter, where am I going to go? Am I going to go follow some other God now because you didn't do it the way I wanted you to do it? No, God, you're good. You're holy. You're sovereign. You're faithful. I don't get it, but I'm going to wait. And I'm going to trust. And notice what verse 2 says. And the Lord answered. And he always does. And when you come to the end of your days and you're able to write your story, so to speak, or maybe someone will write your story, that'll be the opening line of your story. And he answered me. He was faithful to me. And I can trust him. And Habakkuk demonstrates that to us. He says, write the vision. This is what the Lord says. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it? They wrote this down so we could sit here today and be reminded that God is faithful and true. It's one more example for us in our Bibles of faith triumphing in the lives of the one who believes. Notice in verse 2, God gives Habakkuk instructions. He says, put these things down in writing. Put them down in writing so that others can read this one day so that others can be encouraged by this one day, so others can be taught to walk in these ways. Again, it's why we're doing this testimony night in a couple of weeks from now, so that others can be encouraged 
by what's going on in the lives of your brothers and sisters in the congregation and how they're responding to that in faith so that we can be encouraged to do the same in our lives. He says, put these things down in writing so that others might learn from them. This revelation here to Habakkuk, and not just the, the revelation, but this whole experience that Habakkuk is going through, it wasn't just for his benefit. It was for each of our benefit here this morning. And anyone else who has ever looked at this book, read these words in the couple of thousand years since it was delivered, once more, faith tri triumphs in the midst of his uncertainty. And Habakkuk pulled himself away to a place where he could be alone with God, gain a heavenly perspective, and as God does, he showed up. And he answered Habakkuk. Let's read the response, starting in verse 2. Again, he said, The Lord answered me. He said, Write the vision, make it plain, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations, and he collects as his own all people. God tells him, write this down. I think there's some valuable lessons here. For any one of us that have the opportunity to communicate God's word in some way, and so whether that you're, that's, you're a preacher on a Sunday morning or you're a Sunday school teacher communicating to some kids or you're leading a small group Bible study in some way or you're just simply trying to communicate to a friend the things you've learned about the Lord, I think there's some lessons here for us. He's told to make it plain. Make it plain in order that others might be able to see from it and learn from it as well. Over the years, from time to time, I've encountered Bible teachers that seem like they take delight in confusing us as their listeners. I'm not sure if that's actually their goal, but it sure seems like that's what they're trying to accomplish, that they feel that they've somehow accomplished their job if none of us know what they're talking about. I don't think that's what the Lord would have for us. I think the greatest compliment a Bible teacher can receive is for someone to say, I get it. I understand now what God's trying to say to me through that passage. That's what the Lord would have for us. And so that person that's communicating the word of God, they need to make it plain. Notice it says, so that he may run who reads it. God told Habakkuk to present what he had learned in such a way that others might be able to do something with that learning. We might rephrase that as make it applicable to people's lives. And so I encourage you, as you share what God has been teaching you with other people, make sure in that process you're communicating how you've been able to apply that teaching to your life and how they might be able to apply that teaching to theirs. The Lord says, write the vision. He says, make it plain. He goes on from there, and he speaks about a future judgment that will come on Babylon. You remember the question at the end of chapter 1? God, are they going to do this forever? Are they going to be able to just conquer nations forever and treat them the way that they're treating people? And he says there at the end of verse 3, or the beginning of verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. This speaks to this idea of God's timing, not Habakkuk's and not anybody else's. 
And sometimes, again, that timing seems to be slow. That timing seems to be delayed. Many times the delay causes us to doubt that it will ever come. But notice what he says there in verse 3. He says, Habakkuk, it will surely come. Habakkuk, he says, I will surely deal with Babylon. Perhaps not according to the timeline that you or others might prefer, but I will surely deal with Babylon. Look at verse 4. He continues. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk wondered why God would choose Babylon, a nation that was more wicked than Judah, to judge Judah. It's almost like Habakkuk is saying, God, don't you know how bad those people are? And the Lord says, I know all about those people. I know that they're proud. I know that they're puffed up. I know that their heart is upright. Their soul is upright within them. I know all of that. I see it. I'm aware of it. He sa- it says there that he saw that the nation's soul, the nation of Babylon, that their soul was not upright within them. And because of that, God was going to deal with them too in his timing. Because of that, they would no longer cease to live, cease to exist, if you will. But notice the contrast here. In verse 4, after he talks about their soul being puffed up and, and not right, he says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So the proud and puffed up Babylon, they would die. But the godly remnant of the Jews, they would continue on by faith. So yes, God would use Babylon to discipline his people. But it was not going to result in the total destruction of his people. God was going to discipline his people for the purpose of causing them to return to him by faith. And the Lord is calling Habakkuk to continue in that faith. He's calling Habakkuk to continue to trust him. And so I wanted to paraphrase what we've learned here in these couple of verses. He says, Habakkuk, I've heard your prayer. I understand your concern, and here's my answer. It is true that I've raised up the Babylonians to punish my people, but don't interpret that to mean that I'm endorsing their evil or their sin. On the contrary, I will judge them in due time. I've raised them up, and I'll bring them down. And through all of that, my people must continue to trust me. He says, the one who is truly righteous must live by faith in me. His answer is, judgment will come, Babylon. In the meantime, live by faith. Now, that little phrase there in verse 4, it appears three times in the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why the book of the minor this book of Habakkuk is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament among the minor prophets because this this verse appears three different times in the New Testament. And what's interesting to note, it it's in three completely different contexts in the New Testament. And so one of the times the the verse says the just shall live by faith. One of the times It's in the context of speaking about the just or the righteous and how a person becomes righteous. Another time, it's in the context of living, walking in our relationship with God. And then the last time, it's in the context of faith. And I wanted to draw your attention to these because these words have impacted our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So much so that they appear on three different occasions in three different contexts in the New Testament. The first time that we see it is in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. There, Paul is building his case that the righteous man, sometimes that's translated the justified man, is so because of their faith. I'll remind you, the definition of the word justified, you can remember it in this little easy remembering memory type of way. It is just as if I've never sinned. So a person that is justified is as if that person has never sinned in their entire lives. Paul said, the justified one shall live by faith. In the book of Job, one of Job's friends, he famously asked this question. He said, how then can a man be just with God? And there was no answer really provided there. Paul, quoting Habakkuk, provides us with the answer. He answers that question. The just shall live by faith. It's the person that comes to God by faith, and not as a result of any works that they have done. It is that person that is justified by God. That's the gospel that Paul speaks of earlier in the passage I just read to you that he says he's not ashamed of. It's the person that by faith puts all of his faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that has the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Paul quotes the verse from Habakkuk in the book of Romans. Second time, Paul, again, he quotes this verse in the book of Galatians. And the emphasis there is not on the word just, it's not on the word righteous, but there the emphasis is on the word live, or the two words, shall live. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified by God, uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now if you remember the book of Galatians, maybe you're not familiar with it, maybe you are, I'll remind everybody, the book of Galatians was essentially written in response to a legalism that had begun to develop in the first century church. Those that were introducing to the Christian community a legalism, this idea that the truly just, the truly righteous were those that did all of these things that proved their righteousness or created their own righteousness. That mindset was beginning to develop in the Galatian church. Not that... Uh, that people weren't expected to do certain things as evidence of their righteousness, but to create that righteousness. And Paul responds here, he says, that's not what we believe. That's not what we stand upon. He says, the righteous shall live by faith, not by their works. The righteous rest in the fact that there's nothing that we could do to be righteous or to become more righteous. Faith. So faith is not only that principle upon which we begin a relationship with God, but it's also how we continue in that relationship with God. Paul says the just shall live by faith. And then finally, we see this same verse again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews 11, many of you are familiar. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, that's 10. Hebrews chapter 11, we call that the hall of faith. And it's all about these great men and women of old 
who lived by faith despite the circumstances they were facing. And so you would imagine that the context of one of these final verses of chapter 10 would be about faith. And that is the emphasis of the author here. The emphasis is that is only by entering into the power of the unseen that the believer can be sustained through a life of trial and through a life of conflict. That's by faith. Because again, the just shall live by faith. We don't always have the answers to our questions. And so in response, we must live by faith. That's what Habakkuk is being told to do here by the Lord himself. Habakkuk wondered if God knew just how wicked Babylon was. The Lord says, I completely know. And I will deal with them, and I'll do so in my timing. In the meantime, trust me. Now, to prove that God knew how wicked Babylon was, look at verse 6. God begins to recount what he knows about Babylon. He says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? That's referring to the nations that Babylon has attacked. With scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, in the final verses of chapter 2, five woes, five judgments are going to be announced against Babylon. We have the first in the verse I just read or the verse is. The first woe is against Babylon for their aggression and their lust for empire. And the Lord promises the Babylonians that just as they seized many nations, just as they plundered those nations for their riches, so one day, it says there in verse 8, so too would they be plundered. So that's the first one. The first woe is pronounced because of their aggression and their lust for empire. The second one begins in verse 9. He says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, so that he might set his nest on high. This speaks of the greed of the Babylonian empire. Many versions, they use the word covet there in place of the word greed. Covet for evil gain. Covetousness. Covetousness has been defined as the unsatisfied craving of the heart of man for more than God has been pleased to give. I read another commentator. He said uh, this of covetousness. It is the unquestionable crying sin of our day. It's like the sin trying to get its hold on our lives. Covetousness, it permeates our society. And we look at it and say, all right, well, is covetousness really that bad? Well, I'll remind you, again, we'll go back to the Ten Commandments. That Kyle, you brought it up, so we'll go back to the Ten Commandments there. One of the Ten Commandments was, thou is, thou shall not covet. Is covetousness really that bad? Yeah. It's one of the top ten, so to speak. Paul, he compares covetousness to idolatry. And we already saw what the Lord thinks about idolatry. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, your sexual immorality, your impurity, your passion, your evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of those things qualify as idolatry. First Timothy, 
he says that covetousness for money is the root of every kind of evil. That verse says, for the love of money, that's the idea of covetousness, is the root of all kinds of evil. So covetousness is anything that turns our heart and our heart's occupation away from God towards something else. And listen, beware, because it creeps into our lives very much unnoticed. And it's proven to be the downfall of many. And so, yes, covetousness is that serious. And because of Babylon's greed and because of their covetousness toward the nations that surrounded them, God, in verse 9, he pronounces his second woe against them. As the book continues, he goes on, starting in verse 12, to pronounce the third woe or announce the third woe against them. And this is against the violence of the people. He says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people, people's labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing. For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The violent individual thinks that his or her might makes right. That was the philosophy of the Babylonians. And thus, they, they abused others for their own gain. Again, the violent individual believes that their might makes right. And thus, they can take advantage of other people because what are you going to do about it? Well, the Lord takes notice. The Lord reminds Habakkuk, he reminds anyone else, every one of us in this room that's going to come across this material, he reminds in verse 14 that the day is coming when the one true God will be acknowledged the world over. Look at the verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That tells me you better get right with that person who's one day going to rule over all the world. Babylon and every one of us. Verse 15, we have the fourth woe. You can see it begins with that word. It says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. That word gaze, it also speaks to the idea of taking advantage of their nakedness. He says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done the Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. This one here, this is a pronunciation of judgment against those that entice other people to sin. Consider that. Think about the shows we watch for entertainment. Think about the things that we read for entertainment. Think about, think about the way that perhaps we might even be used in our own lives to entice other people into sin. The Lord says a judgment is coming upon Babylon, in this case, for that. And then the last one, the final woe, is a woe against the idolatry of Babylon. It says in verse 18, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, or to a silent stone, Arise. Can that stone, can that wooden thing teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so the Lord here, he's addressed the aggressive man. He's addressed the greedy man. He's addressed the violent man. He's addressed the one that leads others into sin. And now he calls out Babylon for their idolatry. He says, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent thing, stone, arise. He asks the question, what prophet is an idol? What prophet is an idol made and shaped by a human creator? Now, he doesn't answer the question directly, but notice what he goes on to say in verse 20. He contrasts. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple, and let all the earth keep silence before him. In contrast to these lifeless idols, the Lord was alive and he was well from in his holy temple. The time is coming when the foolishness of the idolater would be exposed by the majesty of the living God. Much like this story that Kyle shared earlier. Habakkuk comes into this chapter. He doesn't understand why God would judge a sinful nation with a nation more sinful. He ends the chapter by being reminded of God's wisdom, by being reminded of God's strength, by being reminded of God's ultimate triumph over wickedness. God knew that Babylon was filled with the proud, the greedy, the violent, the drunk, the idolater, and the Lord knew how to deal with them. And so this morning as I close from chapter 2, let me just make this point of application. Remember we learned earlier where Habakkuk was told to write it down, make it plain so people can run with it. One of our obligations here is to make it applicable so people can do something with it. Well, that's what I want to do. And so I think the point of application is this. These woes that are pronounced against the king of Babylon and his armies, they reveal to us the mind of God toward these things in our lives as well. And so I would encourage you, allow the Lord to search out your heart this morning concerning these things. Is there a bit of covetousness and greed that has begun to settle into your heart? Well, now you know how the Lord feels about that. Is there a propensity toward violence, even, or even just the philosophy of your might makes right? So maybe you're not physically violent, but you have power, and you'll take advantage of other people because of that power that you have. Is there a bit of that taking root in your heart? Have you in the past, or God forbid, do you still put stumbling blocks before others in matters of sin? It's funny. It's just a joke. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. We now know the heart and the mind of God concerning those things. Fourthly, have you given yourself, or lastly, have you given yourself to idols? Now, the story that Kyle shared, there was a guy literally that had done that. I suspect many of us here, we don't literally do that. We don't have a little statue that we set up. Maybe some of us do. Some of us come from a background like that. But idolatry is more than a little statue that you go and you talk to and you pray to. Again, idolatry, it has this idea of anything that gains control of your heart and, if you will, pushes God off the throne of your heart, where that primary place should be. Has something taken the place of God on the throne of your heart? Let God search out your heart on that. Is something taking up root there? 
Babylon was judged for these things. And believing God to be the same yesterday, today, and forever, is it reasonable for us to conclude that he wouldn't care about these things in our lives? It's not. We know that he does. And so look, I know, that's a heavy word to sort of end our time together. But we want God's word to search out our hearts. And sometimes it's like, wow, this is great, Lord. And other times it's a heavy word. But we need all of those things. And we need God to minister to us through his word. And so that is my prayer, that God would minister to each one of us in the deepest places of our hearts, so that as Paul says in the book of Romans, we might be transformed more into the image of his son. That's what we want, right? That's why we're still here on the earth, on this journey is that we might become more and more like Jesus until the day that he calls us home. And so let's allow God to do that work in each of our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, it is, has been my experience in my own walk that early on there were a whole lot of things you shine light on very quickly it seemed like every area of my life needed to change. But then we begin to get sort of settled in. And we don't find ourselves asking that question of, Lord, is there something in me that needs to go? We just sort of get comfortable, perhaps. And Lord, we know that the closer we get to you, the more your light will shine and will expose and we wanted to do that. We want the light of God to do that in our lives. And so, Father, I pray for us here, those that maybe have been in the faith a long time. Lord, I pray that we might, in a fresh way, come before you. And pray that prayer of David, search me, O God, and know me. Find if there be any way of wickedness within me. And root it out. And Lord, we believe that as you do that, in a fresh way, we can enjoy an even more unhindered fellowship with you. And that's what we desire. Lord, for those that have yet to begin a relationship with you, would you reveal your holiness, your goodness, your mercy, your love, your plan through your son, Jesus Christ? and open their hearts to believe. And Father, for those that are in the Lord, would you remind us afresh that the righteous shall live by faith and all of that, what that means, that we would walk in it. We ask in Jesus' name today, amen.